My guest is Dr. Simon Michaud, who has a PhD in mining engineering. He is Australian by birth and is associate professor at Geological Survey of Finland. In my view, he is one of the few people in the world who has a clue about what the future holds. What is really coming down the pike? Simon will talk to us about the real world limitations in energy and minerals that hardly anyone is talking about. Dr. Michaud, how are you today? Hello, um, I'm well. I'm well. Uh, hello to Kentucky and all your local viewers. We are, uh, Kentucky is thrilled to have you. Um, it, Simon, you've been writing reports that are 600, 800, 1,000 pages. How do you do it? There must be three of you. Um, it's, you know, chance favors the prepared mind. Well, I've been looking at this for a long time. And mm. so, I've got certain things at my um, uh, fingertips and it's like the planets aligned a few years ago that I was in an opportunity where I could actually present this work. And um, my, my, uh, the job I was in was actually uh, supportive of that. And it was such an opportunity that I became quite motivated to write uh, a series of reports to address a series of blind spots that before were ignored. And so it's like, it was like that one thing led to another and, and a hole was cut in my head and I just poured everything out on the paper. Mm -hmm. Like uh, some of those reports, like the rebalancing, uh, uh, restructuring the circular economy into the resource balanced economy was written in eight days. And so- <laughs> How long is that? How long is uh, that? Uh, 200 pages, mm -hmm. 300 pages, something like that. But it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's like I've been waiting to write this stuff for a long time. And, you know, when you practice something, it's really easy. Mm -hmm. So, well, uh, here we are. And so, um, but uh, what's interesting is things are moving quickly and I'm moving from one frontier to the next. And already the next frontier is opening up. And the next report that I'm putting together now, as in what do we do about all this, is probably going to be the longest one yet. And that's unfortunate because they told me not to do that again. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you, in the future, are we going to live in a very different economy? If so, how? Yes. Right. So the so um, to quote Chris Martinson, the future in the next 50 years will be nothing like the last 50 years. Right. And the reason for that is the things that underpin our existing industrial ecosystem or e system, sorry, uh, our money our energy and our raw materials all of a sudden are not going to be as available in abundant methods and measures. And so what that means is the way we've lived up until now, uh, we've taken certain things for granted. And all of a sudden, the fundamentals, so fundamental, like the oxygen we breathe, we don't see it. We don't consider it. We've always had energy at our fingertips. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, we still have energy at our fingertips, but we're starting to see that, that the existing way of getting hold of energy is becoming more expensive and unreliable. And, and energy and, and, a bit and credit. Energy yes. and credit. Well, they are linked at the hip, right? Uh, um, due to the petrodollar agreement, you know, 1973, all US dollars, uh, uh, all oil contracts are now purchased in US dollars. And that's held un until now, and it looks like it's... a uh, that now becoming un unsteady. But what that meant was the entire world would, ha would have to actually interact with uh, um, the US currency. And the US currency was able to maintain its global status by essentially, uh, every time it wanted to balance the budget, it could actually print money. So it never was in a situation 
were had to actually contract a, a plan for the future. They didn't have to put something off to pay for it later properly. Right. And they've had to show discipline. No, let, let and, me ask you, uh, the way I see it, the conversation around the future of energy is driven by two camps. And there's a third option that is better than the first two. One camp says fossil fuels forever, no problem. Another camp is we need to switch to 100% renewable energy with all the bright-eyed, mm -hmm. bushy-tailed attitude that goes along with that. And then there's a third option that says we don't have the energy or the materials to implement renewable energy, and we're going to run out of cheap oil. So it's like mm -hmm. none of the above, right? Yep. And from that, we've got three or four options, right? And and so it requires us to actually work on things um, and, and uh, multiple programs in parallel, right? Uh, and um, but, the, but the reality is those two camps, I believe, are mistaken. And, and both of them are actually going to be, are in what I call the cornucopian group. Okay, uh, right. The cornucopian, cornucopian is like the horn of plenty. We have plenty. We've always lived with plenty. Yep. We're, right. We think we're always going to live with plenty. Yep. So the, my, my work has been criticized recently um, quite a bit by saying, you're suggesting a solution that would never happen, right? And the purpose of that work was not to put the optimal solution on the ground. It was to show the people who control our society that their thinking is wrong. Now, who I'm talking about is the banking sector. Now, I've actually seen up close and personal what these ass clowns actually think, and it really upset me, right? So um, I, I was in a, um, I came to Europe from the Australian mining industry, and I got a reasonably senior position in, in Belgium, and I used to sit in the European Commission meetings where they were discussing uh, uh, the future, as in how they were going to transition away from fossil fuels and and their plans for the, you know, the circular economy and the H2020 project. And, and it all sounded you know, starry-eyed and wonderful and, and all the reports looked very glossy and, and such a lot of money was put into it. You know, like that, get this, if, if, I don't know if you've been part of the research and development world, but that, that, that's where I spent most of my career. They had this project called H2020 that had something like over 90 billion, with a B, euros over four or five years. 400 universities across Europe were being fed off this one project. And I'd never seen so much money into, into, into research. Anyway, I, I was actually attending um, a few, because in, in Australia, I was forming a conduit between, in the mining industry, in, in the private sector, uh, the guys who were actually trying to get a, a feasibility study off the ground for a mining operation. So the executive board of a mining company, the capital investment groups that might give them the money to do it, and the technical design engineering team that might actually help them along make the right plan. And this is what geometallurgy uh, had evolved into. So that, that's what uh, I was trying to do. And so I sort of understood the language enough to attend some of these meetings. And I attended one meeting in, in um, ca uh, a capital investment group to try and get going the European battery industry. And what often happens with these um, sorts of meetings, the, the presentations themselves are not necessarily the useful part. It's, it's when you get to the morning tea. So just to preface, batteries yep. are a big deal because that requires, you know, any any movement toward decarbonization 
requires heavy use of batteries because solar and wind are intermittent. And also electrification of vehicles requires heavy use of batteries because, just because yeah. it's a it's a mobile device. So let me back up a bit. The biggest task to phase out fossil fuels looked at was the transport sector. How do we actually take the internal combustion engine technology, cars, trucks, um, commercial vehicles, but also rail and maritime shipping and aviation? It's all ICE. Okay, how do we take that and turn it into something not ICE? And there's two technologies on the ground at the moment. One is electric vehicle with a battery, and the other is a hydrogen fuel cell uh, powering an electric propulsion device. So both are electric, but they store energy differently. Now, the other side of the equation is how to much to power, how is power delivered in a non-fossil fuel way? And so we got wind, uh, and there's a whole series of technologies we can look at. The IEA projected that the future primary energy system would be wind and solar. Wind and solar is highly intermittent. We can talk about more about that later. And the primary task, it turns out, how do we arrange a power storage buffer to manage the intermittent nature of wind and solar so it delivers an even uh, uh, power supply? And it turns out um, batteries were the preferred way to do that. There are other technologies, but governments around the world believe batteries were the solution uh, for that. We can talk a bit about that later. And it turns out we don't have enough raw materials to make those batteries. And the answer is not to find more raw materials, but to change the technology that needs the buffer. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about that later. So there are solutions. It requires thinking to be changed. Right. So, um, yeah. Anyway, so, so, so back to this meeting. So, so they were um, talking about how do they should get a battery industry going in Europe. And so these were the banking guys, and they presented very differently to any other group I'd come across. They didn't care. They said, look, um, when I was a few years ago, I was in the what was called the C20, which is the civil service uh, a civil society advisory group that advises the G20. You know, the G20 meetings they have in internet. Right. right. So this was the C20 and, you know, there was the B20 and, and, and all that around it as well. They came and told us at the beginning of the meeting, if you can't help us deliver 2% growth, don't bother coming. And so hang on, but we're, we're the civil society guys. Why you know, is growth a problem? Well, the system must grow to survive. Uh, you know, uh, Chris Martinson uh, is probably the best at communicating that in, in what he calls the crash course. Um, but uh, the system must expand because we're, in, we're now in increasing debt mm -hmm. and that debt has to be maintained. And the nature of how our money works, uh, you know, with, with uh, Chris Martinson, another guy called Steve Keen are very good at describing the pickle we are in financially, which is why the system's been growing all this time. We're now over our skis and we are pretty much looking at a correction. And the financial system is now so fragile that it's not in a fit state to engage in industrial reform. So, um, yeah. Anyway, so they were saying, um, yeah. And so, so the civil service, the, the G20 guy said growth, it's, it's all about growth or, or, or don't bother coming. And so then they actually said, when, when we said, look, that's not really our mandate, so we're not going to look at anything you give us. So the whole C20 conference that was running in parallel with the G20 was a PR exercise for the public that we lived in a civil society. You know, it, it really was an eye-opener. And the second thing that uh, I, I so saw... what you're in, saying is that your work was irreconcilable with the mandates yeah. of the financial 
people. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that, you know, who are over Europe. Yeah. And so they were basically saying, don't waste their time, go away. And, and, and so I was part of a larger group to try and do that. And so in this capital meeting, the, they were talking about, they were talking about, we want to start an industry in Europe around batteries. And this, all right, okay. Um, and so the European Commission stood up and said, this is what we need, and but it can't happen without finance, and that's you guys. And the European Central Bank was there, and all the private sector guys were there. And, and I was talking to the Toyota uh, guys from Toyota over uh, morning tea, and they had a few interesting insights. But So anyway, so they, they, they actually um, came out and, and said, whoever steps in and makes the market first, will take all the risk, do all the work to establish trust in the market and, and everything. And whoever steps in second will take the market from them and will gouge them. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to be the third owner of the gym. Right. And so they're all looking at each other. And so the banking guys will say, show me how I can make money from you or show me how I can destabilize a competitor or don't waste my time. And they were saying money is just as good for us from China as it is from Europe. You know, uh, and so, so I actually stood up and asked, what's going to happen if um, free market you know, and global trade breaks down? Oh, we don't think that'll happen. Right. And so, so in, in other words, they had this sort of paradigm that was this uh, delusional wall around them and you just couldn't get to them. And, and so, so I actually heard these guys say, well, whoever moves first is going to lose money off everyone else. So what I'm hearing you saying is that the... Um economics trumps physics so yeah. you know for the last 50 economics, years the economic system is sacrosanct <clears throat> and the physical limitations we're up against the biophysical limitations we're up against we're not going to worry about that because it doesn't fit with our economic model that's right that's right and so i would say not uh, not economics i would say ideology mm -hmm. ideology trumps physics and it's been that way for 50 years. If we want to balance our budget, we just print more money. We don't have to face reality if we don't want to. Right. So one thing I've heard you say about your work in Europe, I think it's related to the story that you're telling, is that Europe does very little mining for ecological reasons. They have the environmental controls that say, for the most part, Europe is not going to be trashed by mining. So mm -hmm. the materials from mining come from other continents. Well, how so is this that is significant. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually the whole purpose of the circular economy. Mm -hmm. They realized in about 2005 that Europe was extremely vulnerable. That that their um, uh, how do you say their expertise was was being taken. Um, uh, well, no, what I'm saying, they realized the source of raw materials that held their businesses together was coming from outside Europe. And the explicit thing they said, uh, recognized, but would not say out loud, was China was dominating almost every sector. And from a strategic point of view, they realized that they had really um, cooked their own duck. And so what do we do about this? And so they started up the circular economy, but the explicit thing was to protect the businesses. It's not about the raw materials themselves. So and by when I circular got... economy, it means you're getting your materials more locally. There's more recycling going on, yes. that kind of thing. Well, um, it's, the circular economy won't work in its current form. Yeah. But it's, I see it as a stepping stone to something else. It's, it's not thermodynamically possible. Yeah. What they mean 
is instead of mining, getting raw materials, they'll get all their materials from recycling. And, and so it's a nice idea, uh, but, but you run into trouble very quickly. And so really it's a stepping stone to something else. And, and I like you're to not use... only You're not only expert in this area, but that's your job right now. Yeah. To design a circular economy for Finland. So you're um, not just sitting at the outside throwing rocks. You're, this is what you do. So throwing rocks. Hmm. Yes, that's great. <laughs> uh, so, so um, everyone, there's a lots of people in Europe. Uh, my division is called Circular Economy Solutions. Now, lots of people have such a title. Um, most of us are just doing business as we were before. If you get people to describe what the circular economy is, they tend to glaze over, you know, stun mullet, you know, uh, yeah, um, it's, it's a very poorly defined term. I'm in a very unique position, something I give daily thanks to. Uh, the work that I've done recently has actually come out and it's been discussed and I've, I've presented it to some fairly senior people. And one of the comments that has actually come from the Swedish government through a think tank, right, that, that talks to all Baltic um, mm -hmm. governments, this is, all right, look, okay, you've made your point. There are others that disagree with you, but you've made enough of a point for us to look at this. Let's say you're right. What do we do about this? And could you please design a new circular economy in context of your work, which means mineral shortages, energy shortages, peak oil, manufacturing shortages, and uh, recycling bottlenecks, right? And so what will that look like? And it's no longer a circular economy. <laughs> and so, but that's, that's actually this year's job. So and let's so, talk yeah. about, uh, like... What? How is the world going to look uh, different? How's the economy going to be different inevitably as a result of energy limitations and minerals limitations? Uh, I've, I've heard you say that it's going to be more regional. We're mm -hmm. not going to have the, the cheap fuel that it takes to have a global economy with all the long distance travel and all of its complexity. Yeah, so we, we are looking at a... Um... We're in a situation now where, where transport from one end of the planet to the other, or one, or around the planet, simply is irrelevant. Right? There's a case study I like to quote where in Edinburgh and Scotland, they, they have a fishing hub. Oh. They go out and, and collect salmon. This is right? good. So, Listen up. Uh, you know this one, do you? And so they collect salmon. They take the salmon off the, uh, off the ship. And so the fishermen go, right, okay. They load it onto another ship and they send it out to Vietnam, other side of the planet. And in Vietnam, they take the fish, they prepare it, and they put it in cans. And they put a label on the can. Where does the can come from? Somewhere in China, right? Um, and then the cans are put back on a ship, different ship, sent back to Edinburgh, and they put in a supermarket. So the guys that actually fished the actual salmon in the first place would go down to the supermarket and buy some food, right? But they don't go to the local fish market and buy fresh fish. They buy tins of salmon. Mm -hmm. That have been to the other side of the globe and, and back. back and right. back. And it still costs only, you know, a couple of pounds or a couple of, you know, a couple of cents. There's that we're in like a, um, a remarkable place where we can actually do that. Now we, we can do that because energy really was so cheap and effective. So when it's less cheap, less available, like it's still going to be around, but, but, you know, it, it won't be as, as readily available. This is Hart Hagen. You're listening to The Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP, 
106.5 FM, Louisville. Um, Arthur Berman is, is putting together the best information about the status of the oil and gas industry at the moment. Um, and he's done some recent work with Nate Hagens. So I recommend that. Uh, so when it comes to the point where you can't do that so much anymore, we're, we're a very complex system across six continents. Six continents. So, so most of our manufactured stuff comes from the other side of the planet, China or South Korea or sometimes Japan. Right, uh, or anything manufactured in Europe, we still use components manufactured in China or South Korea or Japan. Right, uh, and and so if it comes more and more difficult to actually send things okay. back and forth so across the planet, one of the things that I've learned from you, I, I, I at one point I was calling you the four horsemen of the pot of the apocalypse. You, Nate right. Hagens. Um, Tom Murphy and Daniel Schmachtenberger. And there's a couple of other names that have been added to that. But there's four people that I learned from like simultaneously. And what I got All from good men. you, what? All good men. Yeah. Uh, what I got from you is that we're, we're going to run out of cheap energy. Yeah. Right. And, and it's going, it's going to be inevitable. It's no longer going to be a policy choice based on our benevolence or our generosity or our prudence. It's yeah. going to be thrust upon us, the limitations that we're talking about. Yeah, and, I, and I want you to talk about like, for example, I want you to talk about the decline in cheap fossil fuels. And right. then well, let's talk about the materials and minerals limitations associated with so-called renewable energy and <clears throat> electrification of vehicles. Mm -hmm. What okay. is the scenario? And some of this involves economics. What is the scenario mm -hmm. whereby within the next 10 or 20 years at the outside, it would seem, predictions are notoriously hard, but I shouldn't have given that time frame. but I'm, I'm saying, what is the, what are the mechanisms irrespective of the timing? And then what are your best guesses in terms of the timing of a world uh, of a crisis where we transition to a different world with a more local and regional economy. So it's futile to predict the future and it's futile to actually dictate what the future would be in a plan for response. So my uh, approach now is to understand the influences and how are those influences interacting with each other. Mm -hmm. And so you end up with a, a window of, of uh, to look at. So our current technology is petroleum based. And economically, we are still heavily, heavily dependent economically on petroleum, right? And so back in the day, let's let's say go back to 1900, um, oil technology was just starting to come in. There was already a complex system in place that was based, based off coal and steam technology. So now we've got oil, the most calorifically dense energy source we've ever seen. So over a century, we have built up this um, system around us. And um, we, we've settled into various, you know, ways of how that system operates, you know, cars, trucks, buses, and how society uses them. And we've gotten very used to all this. And this was actually built, um, a lot of it happened during the 50s and 60s. But, but after, since 1970, we have stopped expanding the system. And we've just essentially tried to maintain exist what we have through efficiency measures. Right. And since the 1970s, early 1970s in particular, things have become more and more difficult. And so 
what's happened is 50, 60, 70 years ago, um, the oil, the energy that we got from oil and gas was, was we didn't have to put much effort in to get a high quality action out. You've got the concept of energy return and energy invested there. Exactly. And that, that's that's a um, so that's energy a return on energy investment is like yep. you have to invest a certain amount of money in yep. order to get a barrel of oil or whatever it yep. is. So how much? So that naturally goes down over time yep. because it naturally the more uh, when something is abundance, it's cheap to get. When it becomes more scarce, it becomes increasingly more expensive to get. And that's the concept of energy return on energy investment is declining over time. Yep. So uh, in 1900, it was around 100 to 1. For every unit you put in, you got 100 back, whether it was dollars or units of energy. Um, and so over time, uh, there was a time when you could just drill a hole and oil just shoots into the air and you just catch it with a bucket and and it, and it didn't need that many processing steps to actually use. So now you've got to go out um, into the middle of the, into the ocean where it's quite deep, you know, two or three miles deep. And then you've got to drill into the ocean floor two or three miles down, you know, like 10,000 feet down uh, um, to, to get, um, to, fi to find the oil in the first place. And then once you found it, you've then got to get it up and then get it back to shore and got it through a whole series of processing steps before you use it. There's more to it now. And so the costs of oil um, went up. And I, I think it was sometime in the 90s or in the 2000s where it went from about $20 a barrel and it, and it started to shoot up. And now we're, we're most of the time since 2005, over $100 a barrel. And, and so we're having to put much more in to get the same unit of energy out. And so here's the thing. Here's the thing. So, you know, energy return on energy investment decline or it it um yeah it declines incrementally over time hmm. so you but it, when you bring in the concept of money somehow that takes a gradual decline and turns it into a precipice hmm. that's right so so the the classic case is the bell curve you know the old hubbard peak hubbard had a great idea marrying king hubbard this was peak oil but he didn't have all the information at hand. Um, and now that we're actually sort of using technology to sweat more and more oil out of our deposits, right? We're now getting to the point where um, we're wanting to expand more and more each year. We're consuming more and more each year. And to get each unit, we're having to do more and more effort. And which is why our money system is expanding more and more as well, just to keep up. And so when I say expanding, per unit of person, per capita, for every person, the amount of money being spent and exchanging hands now is much more than what it was in the 1940s and the 1950s. Right? Now, so, one, so one question I've had when you've talked about this is that the money, are we talking about uh, inflation-adjusted dollars and how do you define inflation? It's like, but you know, you're talking about government's printing fiat currency and naturally that currency is going to be devalued when they yep. do that That's and, right. and so that is so how does that factor in so what's happening um since the federal reserve was founded and uh i think it was 1913 it was founded in 1916 it went operational something like that since then they've had the ability to print money and they had fractional reserve banking Mm -hmm. And so, which, which means the money supply could be actually increased 
by the commercial banking sector by handing out loans. And so the system was expanding. They, they said, well, that's good, right? But it's not based on anything real. And so there comes a point where you've got to pay the piper. So now that we've got inflation, where everything's devaluing, and uh, you know uh, how much how much prices are rising uh, year on year, so there's a number of pressures there. Uh, I call this the road to Zimbabwe, you know, uh, but because since, Zimbabwe had hyperinflation, yes, and it was very famous because it, was, it, was, it wasn't that long ago, 2008, and they very famously had a 100 trillion dollar note, mm-hmm, which was right. worth about 30 euros when they finally shut it down. <laughs> so, so like, hey, let's just use dollars hey can we just use dollars <laughs> yeah we'll see, but, but i believe that's going to happen to dollars but also every other fiat currency is going to follow that because they're also interlocked well, well, that's brief history of how that happened it used to be that the that the dollar was based on gold theoretically you could present a dollar and yeah. get a certain amount of gold in return for it in the early 70s that changed and we went on the petrodollar which involved getting saudi arabia to sell its oil in dollars and that maintained the strength of the dollar for a long time. And now with you know, multipolarity is coming into play. You, have, you don't have the U.S. being just a, 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 the, the, the status of the U.S. as a multipolar power militarily and economically is eroding. And it's in that context that we have the devaluation of the dollar in the foreseeable future. Yeah, and then so, that's going to affect the availability of cheap energy. So, I've actually proposed that the nature of money is about to change. Like mm. We're heading for a reset of some sort, obviously. And even though like, I actually presented to the International Monetary Fund, and I presented the numbers of quantitative easing that's actually come down since um, uh, you know to respond to the you know, um, GFC in two thousand and eight, and I showed that over time all the way up to the COVID package, we've used increasingly large parcels of money in an unprecedented fashion mm-hmm. to solve our problems. And so it, it and, and I called it a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. And the bullet wound is still bleeding. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting was they clapped. The audience clapped. They actually at the IMF, at the International Monetary Fund. The, someone, the very... Someone, like this is the lion's den of 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 what do you call it the the bank this is the lion's den of central bankers who applauded uh, one of them one of yeah, them one of them one the of them. IMF like the, and the World Bank the the true lion's den is the Bank of International Settlements but okay uh, and I'm not game to go anywhere near those guys but the, these guys <laughs> um, well not yet um, they might put me in a long wooden box. But um, these, uh, this was the International Monetary Fund that gives out loans to uh, uh, countries around the world. They do a lot of work with the World Bank. So you have to remember, every group I've come across have quietly told me, not everyone, but some people have quietly said, look, we like your work because you said the quiet part out loud. Mm-hmm. And we can refer your work without losing our jobs. This guy said that. You know, what do you think? How do we debunk him? You know, and so it's like a reverse slap in the face. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, in, in fact, uh, I call this whole thing the reverse bait and switch. And my you've basic also strategy. been told, look, this is not going to help your career. Yeah, um, I've actually made a few decisions across my career that were self-defeating. 
you know, this is career limiting moves. And mm-hmm. someone did take me aside and said, look, you've got it in you to have a stellar career. You can go right to the top. You'll be very rich. And it says, but for Christ's sake, shut your mouth. And, <laughs> and so what I found though, was the information I was collecting when you actually understand it is in my career, we are going to see a calamity, right? A very serious calamity. And at that point, everyone who is actually not prepared to face those problems is going to have a really, really bad hair day. It's like the emperor has no clothes. You're the kid that's saying the emperor has no clothes, but all the intelligent people are supposed to believe that these, that he has clothes. They're just made of invisible thread and intelligent people can see that. So in this case, the intelligent people are the ones who have been trained in economics, which might be, is economics ideology. That's one thing. See the world in layers. Right. We see the world in layers. Yes. Oh, the neoclassical economics, uh, they've got their thing and we've got our thing. We assume they've got it under control. Right. And but what I've heard a couple of times now is is people um, uh, people actually sort of often sort of come out and say, we are under pressure to not to give bad news. Anything that might suggest jobs will be lost or money will be lost or anything like that. And, and, and so. It, it, it creates this self-censoring thing. Now, GTK, the Geological Survey that I work for, they operate on a mandate of science, and they said as long as this is the truth in an auditable fashion, the brutal, honest, absolute truth will let you publish. Right, and so there's a pretty savage internal peer review, right? But 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 my management, when I sort of described a few things. Uh, to them, they actually understood pretty quickly. Uh, and the way they came to it was I said, look, I'm showing there's going to be a mineral shortage, especially in battery minerals. And GTK manages a battery minerals portfolio. Perhaps the, you know, Finland's got some of the nicest minerals in, in, in Europe. Okay, batteries. let's talk about this. So I have yeah. a, I have two columns here. One is materials and minerals, yep. and the other is applications. Like, mm-hmm. you know, materials include lithium, copper, iron, et cetera. The applications include wind, solar, electric vehicles. So you just said that there's going to be a limitation in the materials needed for battery. Did you say specifically lithium or, well, let's talk Uh, about batteries and or lithium and the materials limitations of that. So it depends on what you think is going to happen. And my work that I've done is to uh, showcase what the central planners of the world at the moment think is going to happen you know lithium ion um, chemistry you don't have to make batteries out of lithium but they think that's all we're going to do right so if we were to go down that path and there's lots of different chemistries there's five dominant chemistries that dominate the battery battery market and most of them are lithium based and i think there's one that's vanadium vanadium redox so what i've assembled and this is a straight engineering calculation it is not a model how many cars trucks vehicles etc how much power do we need to deliver how much power will we need to charge electric vehicles and the hydrogen fuel cells make the hydrogen that's the amount of power we need how much power do we have how much of its fossil fuels get rid of the fossil fuels build out the rest using non-fossil fuel systems and then put in the support infrastructure as I understand it, for what's left. It's a straight calculation. 
right? It's not a model. And that is where my work differs from others. So what comes out of that? And, and then you work out, well, well each one, of the- one thing about this is that, you know, electricity is about 20% of all energy. The rest is largely, uh, much of it is transportation of people and goods. Mm-hmm. And you have this situation where there's a certain, there's certain, in my opinion, commercial interests that yep. are insisting on electric vehicles, and the environmental movement is all on board with this. Mm-hmm. I've seen a prediction that says by 2030, 80% of the lithium, lithium will be used in electric vehicles. And is that the best use of the limited lithium resources that we have? Nope. So um, if you actually sort of you know do the numbers up and you sum like, like what is in each, what you know, do get a market share off the IEA and, and what 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 are the chemistries involved and what's in each chemistry and you sum it up and you've got by metal how much is there how much do we need for the first generation remember just to replace what's around us now uh in, right before using... you recycle you have to build something so if right. you recycle copper for uh wind turbines then you have to build the first generation of wind turbines first before That's you right. can even think about recycling any of it yep and you've also got the problem of most of the technology used today it requires entirely different metals to the electric generation that they want. Like most ICE cars, internal combustion cars, use steel, aluminium, magnesium, a little bit of copper, a little bit, right? But now we're actually going to replace that with electric vehicles that use uh, a lot of copper, lithium, nickel, cobalt, and all these rare earths and and everything, and a little bit of aluminium. Mm -hmm. So now we want to mine all these trace elements in the same volumes that we want for um, that, that, that we normally do, say, in, in copper or steel even. And that, that just doesn't reflect reality and, of okay. how these things so are there are there are limitations in the total amount of these materials that yep. are in the earth. There are limitations in terms of how much production we have annually and can meet to meet the demand. You've done some, uh, you know, eye-opening calculations about, you know, at, at current production levels of copper or lithium, here is how many years it would take to build out this proposed, you know, the proposed system for so-called renewable energy, the proposed system for electrification of vehicles. And are we dealing with some bottlenecks there? So we want 4.7 billion tons of copper just to make the first generation of stuff around us. Mm-hmm. That's 6.7 times the historical volume. And we think we're going to do that in 20 years. Yeah, right. Right. And right. so the energy in, embedded, these, that's another whole can of worms. Right, that's that. That's actually the subject of future work. How much energy do we need to make this stuff? And what happens if we don't have fossil fuels anymore? And then, over the course of time, yeah. one thing that I've learned from you is that you know, over the course of time, whatever mineral you're mining, you have to grind it into ever finer yeah. <laughs> powder, and that takes more energy. That's right. So um, the finer you grind, the exponential more energy you've got to uh, do apply to do it and we're moving into lower grade deposits with finer grained minerals more disseminated minerals now 40 years ago the uh, closing size of a, of a mineral processing plant was about 150 micron right and so okay um, but now we're actually moving into very disseminated rock that's quite hard and we're grinding down to 20 micron now 
and we're having to do many more tons to keep up. So not only are we grinding finer, but we have to grind more. So that's more energy and more potable water to do that. And you can't really recycle that water because it's so fine that you have trouble settling it in the settling ponds. You can only recycle some of it. This is Hart Hagen. You're listening to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. Let's talk about um, what the future holds in, in your estimation in terms of, you know, we're, we're looking at a crisis. Um, there will be four groups of people in terms of how they respond to the crisis. What are those four groups of people? So I actually originally started out with three, but my friend Steve Keen pointed out I missed one. Now we've got four. And so this was how I got my arms around how I think society is going to respond to this. And it, it comes down to belief, and we'll have all parts of society engaging in all four sectors. So group one is the group I call the cornucopians, now, or the other one's the old school guys. Cornucopia so, means horn of plenty. It's like yeah. we have abundance because they're basing that abundance on what we have seen our entire lives, which is an right. abundance of cheap fossil fuels and an abundance of credit. But they also believe that that we're only going through a temporary blip and things will return to that. Yeah, right? okay. that, that they, they, they absolutely believe and they will defend that paradigm to the death. And there's not a damn thing you can do about it. Perhaps, you, perhaps you've seen it where you tried to convince it, me. It's comfortable. Uh, yeah, but see, if you put data in front of people, so we've got a problem, look at this. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 that's fake news. No, come on, leave me alone. It's not that bad at all. You know, someone will think of something. So you've got the, the, the technical uh, wizards who will fix things and she'll be fine. You've got the conventional green transition group in there who think that we'll, we'll just make solar panels and, and we're fine. And we've got plenty of time, plenty of money and plenty of resources. It's all good. Uh, and you've got the um, conventional um, market guys who think, oh, this is just a market thing. You know, you know demand uh, necessity is the mother of invention. I don't need to worry about anything uh, past, you know, past the salt. It's all good. Right. So that's group one. So it's so, like we have a problem to solve here without seeing the bigger picture. We're hmm. just going to solve a problem. And this is a this crisis is a temporary thing. Yep. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. So, yeah, so we're going to solve a problem and we'll just, just purchase the new product from the local mall, mall when, when the time is ready, when it's cheap enough for me to make money out of it. Right. So group two recognizes everything's not working. And I call this group the Vikings. And Steve, if you're listening to this, thank you very much. Um, the Vikings. Uh, this is the group who, when things get difficult, they're simply just going to take what they need from someone else. Right. So then they're not the, uh, they're just going to, uh, they're not there to try and help. They're not trying to think their way through things. They're just going to take stuff. Um, and um, I think the Vikings will be very successful in educating everyone else the benefit of working together. <laughs> right. So who, who are today's Vikings? Right. That's an interesting question because we are seeing that now. Uh, we're seeing, for example, um, uh, a lot of things geopolitically uh, at, at the moment where people are jockeying for position and doing things where they're just taking stuff. Now, the simple answer is all major groups, China, Russia, United States, and Europe can all be classed as Viking behavior geopolitically. 
you know, what's what's France doing in Africa at the moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's actually it's you know, uh, what what you know, what's China doing to everyone else? And so it's under the guise yeah. of free market economics. So that's mm-hmm. where it's at at the moment, and that's why the system still works. Uh, and and um, what happens when there's it still not enough- works because the the Viking archetype is getting materials that are cheap enough to make their whole system profitable. Yeah. So so what happens when things get ugly, right? And say there's there's projected food shortages this year. Let's say that happens. It, it it's I I really hope the data I'm looking at is mistaken. But we are looking at food shortages. And you speak sometimes from, you have relevant experience in that you worked on an organic farm for a time. Yeah, when the mining industry crashed in Australia in um, 2013, 2014, I worked as a laborer on an organic farm. And I also worked as a furniture removalist for, for a period of time. And I was mowing lawns for rich people. That's how I survived. Mm-hmm. And it sounds terrible, but I actually, uh, I, it, it found it was very useful in becoming self-reliant mentally, clean the head out nicely. So, um, yes. And so I learned to grow food. And who's the, th- we've got cornucopians and the Vikings. Who's the right. third group? The third group are the preppers. Right. The preppers, and I, I used to engage with, uh, I used to teach self-sufficiency. Um, and there's a few YouTubes out there, like development of self-sufficient society. And uh, how do we take a small town self-sufficient? That, that's, that's where I was thinking. These are the people, when things get difficult, will know and understand, okay, it's, it's all a bit unfortunate, uh, but now we're actually going to look at our day-to-day needs. We will now go out there and look at what do we need to eat? Where do we get it from? Where do we get our electrical power? Where do we get it from? Where do we get our fuel to run our tractors and trucks and cars? Where do we get it from and how do we manage it effectively? These are the problem-solving people who will all bets are off and now we're going to innovate our way so we can you know, get by and our conventional ways of doing stuff have fallen apart that's okay we're going to do it so and it's the short-term needs across the seasons and they'll probably so think the, in terms the of self-sufficiency it. you're talking about yeah. is not just self-sufficiency of an individual but a self-sufficiency of a community as these individuals communities, yep. try to adapt. communities. Yeah. And, and you probably see even some nation state actions at that mm-hmm. level where they'll change their behavior to make sure their citizens are, um, are developed accordingly. Because this is and a this macro is especially scale problem. especially important for islands like New Zealand or Hawaii yep. or Australia. Mm-hmm. Yep. Australia has a, a remarkable opportunity, you know, a net position, but they've got to start, stop making dumbass decisions. And they've also lost control over their natural resources. It's all owned by foreign investment now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, hmm. right. So that's the that's the third group. The fourth group are the group I call the Arcadians. Now, these are the people who okay, recognize Arcadia. It. Help me with the etymology of that term. Arcadia <laughs> is a place in northern in, in Canada, and they they became Cajuns when they moved to New Orleans to the Louisiana area. I call it the Arcadians in context of the Greek mythology. Okay, where, where it's a, uh, it's seen as a, a utopia, uh, but a utopia in philosophy, not a utopia in material wealth. As in, if they became a genuinely, genuinely wise and sensible society, um, that were were very educated and and so th- this is the group that wants to evolve a new system 
if we learned everything we needed to learn on all the fronts that are available to us now, and there's lots of problems, it's natural resources, it's energy, it's money, it's environment, it's, it, it's all of this stuff. It's coming at us all at once because we've ignored it for so long. Let's say we understand think and think about the concept of utopian. So utopian is thought to be an idealist. People are shamed for yeah. wanting, like, wanting to pursue uh, something of an ideal society. But if if there's too much shaming of utopianism, then what we're shaming is creative thinking about what kind of society do we want to create because hey yeah. we we tell ourselves we have a democracy so why shouldn't we kind of be thinking and planning and, and implementing according to a vision that we have not one that's been imposed on us so yeah so so this is a uh, what sort of world do we want to live in if we were to learn all the lessons that were actually thrown our way right and and we we actually came through and as a species we understood what we needed to understand how do we make a society where we maintain what we like from this society like at the moment most people are educated and and most and both genders are educated in high levels that has not happened historically and one of the risks we face when we move into a low energy future is we will lose a lot of that education right how do we maintain our scientific knowledge uh, how do we maintain our engineering capacity? Uh, so the basis of the commodities that feed everything is what's about to evolve sharply. And that's going to set off a, a chain reaction. Well, one thing about that is the exchange of information. So part of our uh, part of our awareness and our education comes from worldwide internet which if you have less energy, you have to ask yourself which aspects of the internet will be maintained and which will have to be sacrificed. We also have to have a frank discussion of who's making choices for us that dictate our future. Mm -hmm. And the clearest example I've seen in a long time is who are the Muppets that blew up the Nord 2 pipeline? Because uh, 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 what that means... Of course, Russia blew up their own pipeline. Don't you know that? Yeah, of course they did. So the problem the problem with that is all diplomatic solutions are now no longer possible. And yeah, we're now in a right. situation where we absolutely need to, to go to its final conclusion of a military conflict. Yeah. So here's, a, you know, here's an opportunity from an ecological standpoint, from an environmental standpoint, it makes all the sense in the world to be integrated regionally, locally and regionally. Yeah. Germany and Russia are in the same region, and there's the there are these bad actors in the world who don't want Germany and Russia to be integrated economically. Uh, U.S. policy since World War II could be explained by keeping Russian natural resources apart from German technology, right? Um, and but the United States, yes, I believe they're bad actors, but they're not the only bad actors. We're, we're seeing some dodgy stuff from the Russians, and we're seeing some really dodgy stuff from the Chinese. We were seeing some dodgy stuff from the Europeans, but now we've became become irrelevant. Now we're just talking in circles. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and in fact, we're um, a, a school of thought is that if Europe does deindustrialize because of this gas problem, right? Then um, we don't have enough money. We don't manufacture anything, and we've lost industrial capacity. Do we even matter anymore? Well, that's where you get into a little bit of magical thinking. So from this side of the Atlantic, there are people who think, oh, this is a perfect opportunity to for Germany to convert to 100% renewable energy without any 
uh, concept of what's involved with that or the feasibility of it. Yeah. So, okay, that that technically is true, right? But they're not in a position to do it. They don't have the money. They don't have the resources. And the solutions they put on the ground uh, are not feasible without fossil fuels in some form. Exactly. You, right. you all, whenever you generate electricity, when you deal with intermittency, you need that um, that buffer of either hmm. gas or nuclear or coal. Coal. Usually it's coal yeah. or gas. Yeah. Plus, a lot of what's called renewable energy in Germany is biomass. So we're cutting down, chewing up forests, and a lot of it is, uh, you know, chewing up forests in British Columbia, <coughs> the American South, turning it into wood chips, shipping it to Europe, calling it renewable, even though it's not renewable. So we need to know the ecological reality behind the fantasies so, and models. So what's the energy in that, that shipload of wood, wood chips compared to the energy it took to transport it? into Europe. Oh, no. it, it makes no sense from a carbon standpoint. It makes no sense from a pollution standpoint. It makes no sense from an energy production standpoint. Um, I've, I've heard, I think this is true, that when you burn a load of wood chips or wood pellets, that it takes more carbon than it does. It, it generates more, more carbon than does burning the same amount of coal. Uh, and, and it generates at least as much pollution as burning the same amount of coal. Yeah. So you, um, well, plus, the, not to mention that you just destroyed a forest in order to turn it into a barge full of wood pellets. So the real, for, for me, the real nasty stuff in the climate change uh, window is not carbon. It's the species die-off, land degradation, and ocean acidification we're seeing. Like the yes, whole, right. like Bill Rees yeah, exactly. is, is is really good at describing this okay, let's 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 take a note of that okay there's climate change global warming that's that is an issue but is it more of an issue than the acidification of the oceans and is it more of an issue than species die off i say that species die off and ocean acidification are greater crises than uh greenhouses per se greenhouse gases per se so geologically, things have been swinging around all over the place. Like we, we've had periods of massive climate change in the past, but the planet has been regulated by the life on Earth, and that's had a regulating effect on the stability of the weather, right? And so if we... It's, exactly. It's like, Living yeah. systems regulate weather. Living systems regulate temperature, precipitation, groundwater, weather. And what this you is, just um, said is so rarely even mentioned. Yeah, it's just not in the narrative. Uh, this is James Lovelock's idea. We're seeing the Earth as a self-regulating system, mm -hmm. and all parts of that system interact, including the geological system. So geology, the geosphere interacts with the biosphere, the hydrosphere, the aerosphere, and the magnetosphere. Uh, the um, Earth's magnetic field um, is required to shield from, you know, uh, solar radiation so life here can actually survive it all wow. interacts together mm. and and if you make changes in one area it has this ripple effect mm -hmm. right so what happens when you wipe out the bottom levels of the food chain right it, it doesn't bode well for the uh, large vertebrate mammals yeah, along like us <laughs> and so so we're losing insects we're we're mm -hmm. losing fish we are losing birds uh, um, in the sea, there's microbes there's, in the soil, and microbes in the soil. It, it it's all the stuff, the small stuff that we think is not important, mm -hmm. um, and all the large stuff's being shot and eaten as well. And in its place is um, a lot of human systems, where in particular, how uh, a lot of land use is is now um, geared towards 
uh, either food or some sort of parkland that you know the human species want. Now, uh, um, that I believe is a more serious problem because as we do get to these points of change, it was the life on Earth stability which was able to regulate the planet. If life on Earth is already deteriorated, how is it going to regulate the planet at large if it can't regulate itself? My guest has been Simon Michaud, spelled M-I-C-H-A-U-X. I strongly recommend that you look up his work on YouTube or Google. He has a ton of great content with new material coming out nearly every day. In my humble opinion, Simon's message is vital for understanding a future that is fast approaching. It's going to be a future with limited energy, such that neither fossil fuels nor so-called renewable energy will be cheap or abundant as they are now. Now, nobody knows all the details because the future is famously and notoriously hard to predict. But consider this. Half the fossil fuels we've ever used, we've burnt in the last 30 years because our usage is continually increasing, continually increasing, continually increasing. So how long can that go on? The party is going to be over in the foreseeable future. It's just a question of when. It's time for us to start preparing for the future as it will be and not live according to the fantasies. We are fed by Madison Avenue, Wall Street, Congress, and the military-industrial complex. These institutions are all energy blind. They are blind to the energy we use, and they are blind to the decline in energy that we're going to see. And they are going to be blindsided when our economy gets transformed from what it is to what it will be. So don't be blind like they are. Simon Michaud is able to tell you about this inevitable future that no one is talking about. His work is very well researched, so please look up Simon Michaud, spelled M-I-C-H-A-U-X, on YouTube or Google and go from there.